it's, it's going around, eh? There's a few people away again today. I'm going to choose to believe that sickness and school holidays and, and all those sorts of things. Uh, Sue was away all the last week. I was away most of this week. Um, you know, four people away today who are rostered on for various things. But I said to Sue, we're just getting it all out of the way in 14 days, so it's done. And then we can move on, and it's going to be a good time. So, uh, Bex, great to have you back up here this morning as well. We've missed you on the worship team, so I'm excited that you're back. I'm especially excited that I didn't have to be on the stage this morning to do music. So, good times. Hey, um, one of the best things, see, I'm slowly losing my voice, which is what God does when he wants to speak to me. <laughs> it's like, I need you to shut up for a minute, Shannon, and we're going we're gonna to talk. And so, this week I've been sitting at home, I've been playing a little bit of PlayStation, and I've been, thank you so much, Sue. Uh, I've been, you know, just trying to relax, trying to, and I've got all these sermons brewing in my spirit at the moment, but they're big ones. And, uh, you know, they're ones that I want to preach, but they're not done yet. They're not ready yet. They're not seven days of research. Some of them, you know, are, are sort of building. And there's this pressure that, that's kind of fun because, you know, you've got all these sermons that are, are percolating and then you go, not ready, not ready, not ready, not ready, not ready. Well, God's Sunday is coming. <laughs> and so you've got this pressure to be researching because you don't want to serve up something that's not ready. Half-cooked food is gross. But at the same time, people are hungry. And people are here, and so you go, what are we going to do? And so the, I've been trying to do this, this both-and thing. I've got a couple of sermon series just to whet your appetite so that you know that there's some things coming up. Uh, and, and part of one I'm sort of bringing out this morning. I, I call it the appetizer, if you will, for something that will come a little later. Uh, i got a series uh, brewing in my spirit called Inheriting the Kingdom. Uh, Paul talks about entering the kingdom of God and inheriting the kingdom of God. He uses two very distinct words, so we're going to talk about that a little bit later on. Uh, I got a series coming up on love, sex, and marriage. Uh, we're gonna, I, I, got, I could do three weeks just on sex and sexuality. And um, I could do a lot longer. I'm not going to lie. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, I got, <laughs> don't look at me like that. Uh, I, got, I got three weeks coming up. And you might go, what does sexuality have to do with the church? What does it have to do with God? I would consider based on how much God talks about it, everything. Uh, so that's, but that's another one that I don't want to just talk about. I want to really research, and so that's brewing in my spirit. And then I've got this sermon series on Romans chapter 9 to Romans chapter 11. Have you ever, like, read, those of you, do you, I mean, okay, you've probably read it, but how many of you have ever read Romans 9 and 11 and you know what I'm talking about right now? It's, okay, cool. So it's this most bizarre and confusing part of Scripture. It's like, you get people debating over the elect and, and the non-elect and the Jews and the Gentiles. And Paul says confusing things like in Romans chapter 9, he says, you know, even though Israel were God's children, only a remnant of them will be saved. And then two chapters later, he goes, all of Israel will be saved. And you go, Paul, this is literally the same letter. You can't say those two things because they mean the opposite thing from each other. Are you okay? Do you need a cuddle? You know, and so you, you go through these chapters going, what is going on here? It's, it's, it's very confusing. Um, and I just want to read, I'm going to do a little bit of Romans 9 this morning, like I say, as an entree for something that God's preparing in my heart. Because I just want you to read it, and I want to, you know, we like to sometimes wrap the Bible in cotton wool and make it say what it doesn't say, or make it not sound as offensive as it does. <coughs> but the reality is Romans 9 is offensive. And it's offensive because I'm offended. And I read it and I go, God, what does that mean? So if you've got your Bibles, Romans chapter 9. I'm just going to read through from verse 1 till 
somewhere. It says, With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. They are the people of Israel, chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed His glory to them. He made covenants with them and gave them His law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping Him and receiving His wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors, and Christ Himself was an Israelite as far as His human nature is concerned. And He is God, the one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Well then, has God failed to fulfill His promise to Israel? No, for not all who are born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. Being descendants of Abraham doesn't make them truly Abraham's children. Confusing. For the scripture says, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted, though Abraham had other children too. This means that Abraham's physical descendants are not necessarily children of God. Only the children of the promise are considered to be Abraham's children. Excuse me. For God had promised, I will return about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. This son was our ancestor Isaac. When he married Rebekah, she gave birth to twins. But before they were born, before they had done anything, say anything, good or bad, she received a message from God. This message shows that God chooses people according to his own purposes. He calls people, but not according to their good or bad works. She was told, your older son will serve your younger son. In the words of the scriptures, I loved Jacob, but I rejected Esau. Awkward. Are we saying then, verse 14, that God was unfair? Of course not. For God said to Moses, I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. So it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. For the scriptures say that God's told Pharaoh, I have appointed you for this very purpose of displaying my power in you and to spread my fame throughout the earth. <clears throat> so you see, God chooses to show mercy to some and he chooses to harden the hearts of others so they refuse to listen. Verse 19, well then you might say, why does God blame people for not responding? Haven't they simply done what he makes them do? Verse 20, no, don't say that. Who are you, a mere human being, to argue with God? Should the thing that was created say to the one who created it, why have you made me like this? This verse is the kicker. When a potter makes jars out of clay, doesn't he have a right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration and another to throw garbage into. Amen. <laughs> Which is all well and good as long as you're not the lump of clay that's being used to throw garbage into. In the same way, even though God has the right to show his anger and his power, he is very patient with those on whom his anger falls who are destined for destruction. This is in the Bible. This is the same Jesus that is loving and gracious and abounding and love, slow to anger. This, this is that Jesus. This is that God that Paul's talking about. And you read this and you go, I'd love to just skip this chapter, but it's in the Bible. 
And so rather than sweeping it under the carpet, hoping that no one ever reads it, I went, let's pull it out. Let's wrestle with it. (laughs) Verse 23, he does this to make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on those whom he shows mercy, who are prepared in advance for glory. And we are among those who he selected, both from the Jews and from the Gentiles. I'll stop there. (coughs) I want to encourage you, like if you want to really keep yourself up late at night, go and read the rest of Romans 9, go and read the rest of Romans 10, go and read the rest of Romans 11, and and you will just be left gone. What is this? How many people read that about the character of our God and go, look, I'm honest, if I'm honest, I'm a little confused. I'm I'm a little uptight, I'm a little bit like, what does that mean? And so this is something that I've been sort of wrestling over. And so this week I was on my back, I was sick, and uh, I was playing some PlayStation. And if you can make PlayStation a holy experience, and if you can make it count for the kingdom of God, then it's worth it. And I was playing a game. I'm not going to go into all the details because it's a bit gory. If you've been following on Facebook, apparently I keep telling everybody what I've been doing because it automatically posts on my behalf. Uh, you know, killing some mercenary in a, an arena or something was part of it. Anyway, the point is it's been based <laughs> in ancient Greece. And this got me all sort of excited about certain things about Greece. And at one point, you're walking around this historical, accurate thing of, of Corinth, and you go, oh my gosh, I understand why Paul said all the things he said in Corinth, because you're like, and you go, oh, what a gross place. Uh, and so gone through all this kind of stuff. Um, and then I, I came across this documentary. Emma thinks that I get obsessive, because I like get on something, and then I start watching documentaries on the, so I'm watching documentaries on ancient Greece, and she's like, what is wrong with you? And I'm like, somewhere in this, God is going to work magic, and it's all going to be worth it. And it was this whole thing about ancient Greece and how they did different things. And then somewhere along the line, there was just this two-minute clip, which I wish I had actually got for you to play for you, about pottery. See, ancient Greek pottery is one of the most valuable antiques on the face of the earth right now. When it's bought, when it's sold on, on the antique, modern antique market, it would sell for millions of dollars. These things that were made in 400 BC, some of them, you know, all this stuff. And so I was kind of looking at that and it got me thinking because I've been reading this verse and I've been thinking about all these other things. And it sent me on this journey of actually looking at what is the context of pottery to these people? What is the context of the culture? But keeping in mind that Roman and Greek influences were all in the mix by this point. The interesting thing, let me read a couple of quotes to you. This is from Nigel Spivy. What a name. From Cambridge University. Talking about pottery. In its own time, it wasn't a big deal artistically. What was inside the pot was almost invariably more valuable than the pot itself. See, in our time, we place all this value on the pot. All this value on the art, on the decoration, on the way it's lasted. But in those days, and some of them were just filled with grain, the grain in the pot was worth more than the pot itself. Hey, that's helpful. And so all of these things, as we sort of, we go through and we see this, uh, one of the other comments that he makes, he says, it is now almost commonplace for a Greek vase on the antiquity market to sell for millions of dollars. If the makers of those vases had any idea what we were shelling out for them, their graves would spin with either resentment or absolute hilarity. You're paying what? See, 
a potter was not actually a high-class job. It was a middle-to-lower-class job. If you worked in the, uh, in the ceramicus, which is where we get our word ceramic from, you were basically poor, making pots, just hoping that someone might buy them. That would be your wages. That's what you'd live off. And it, it, it strikes me as interesting that God, as always, chooses to use a lower-class position to describe His nature. So before we start looking at this going, God is talking about, you know, we being pots, we being this, we have to come back and go, God is himself putting himself in a lowly place by using this metaphor. And it's not the only time that he uses it. And that's what I began to find. I felt led by God to go, you want to know what Romans 9 is about? I want you to go through scripture and I want you to find and start looking at all the different examples of pottery and and, and clay that there are in the Bible. The, various, the very earliest one is Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust, that word is clay, of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and man became a living being. God was the first potter. <clears throat> and so we go on in these uh, contexts, but I want to read one that's, that's what will be well known to some of you. Uh, some of you will love it. Some of you will have uh, not so fond memories of it. But Jeremiah chapter 18 Jeremiah chapter 18, and I want to read from verse 1 to 6. The Lord gave another message to Jeremiah. He said, go down to the potter's shop or the potter's house, and I will speak to you there. So I did as he told me and found the potter working at his wheel. But the jar he was making did not turn out as he had hoped. Say that again. But the jar he was making did not turn out as he had hoped. So he crushed it into a lump of clay and started over. Then the Lord gave me this message, O Israel, can I not do to you as this potter has done to his clay? As the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. And so we have to read Romans 9 through the context of Jeremiah 18. We have to look at the fact that God is making these statements, talking about, you know, Paul is writing, you know, does God not have the right to make, you know, one vase that he puts something valuable in and one that he puts garbage in? You go, God, that sounds really awful. But as we start to journey through the scripture, as we start to journey through the context, we start to see something fantastically beautiful. See, one of the things that's quoted uh, in that first, uh, in Romans 9, I'm going to go back there, I should have stayed there. Let's go verse 14. I'll just read it if you, can't, if you can get it up. That's great. If not, uh, are we saying then that God was unfair? Of course not. For God said to Moses, I will show mercy to anyone I choose. I will show compassion to anyone I choose. So it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. Verse 17. For the scriptures say that God told Pharaoh, I have appointed you for the very purpose of displaying my power in you and to spread my fame throughout the earth. Let's dwell there. God said to Pharaoh, the, the one who was oppressing the Israelites, the one who was oppressing and enslaving and murdering God's people, he said to him, I have appointed you for the very purpose of displaying my power in you and to spread my fame throughout the earth. How many people know God just does what he wants? But rather than just take that verse like that, you know, when Paul quotes something, what he wants us to do is go back and look at it. So let's look at Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. 
In fact, let's go to the, yeah, verse 13. <coughs> let's read the whole passage that contains that. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh. Tell him, this is what the Lord says. The God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so they can worship me. If you don't, I will send more plagues on you and your officials. Let's go back to if you don't. If you don't, I will send more plagues on you and your officials and your people. Then you will know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Next verse. By now, I could have lifted my hand and struck you and your people with a plague to wipe you off the face of the earth. But I have spared you for a purpose. He's talking to Pharaoh. I have spared you for a purpose, to show my power and to spread my fame throughout the earth. But you still lord it over my people and refuse to let them go. So tomorrow at this time, I will send a hailstorm more devastating than any in all the history of Egypt. So here's God declaring through Moses to Pharaoh, let my people go. How many people know there's two ways that the glory of God could have been revealed in Pharaoh's life? He could have been convicted by the words of Moses. And then he could have revealed the glory that way. And people would have gone, you're not convinced by anybody. But he says, if you don't, I'm going to reveal my glory in you whether you like it or not, but you won't like the way it happens. Because he goes, if you do, but if you don't, but one way or another, I'm going, here's, my, here's my challenge to you this morning. God is going to glorify himself in your life. My question and my challenge to you is how is he going to do it? See, interesting fact, it talks about Pharaoh hardening his heart. Every time Moses went to Pharaoh, for the first two or three times, it goes, he hardened his heart. He heard the word and he hardened his heart. He hard what does clay do when it starts to set? Hardens. And so what you would do in this context <clears throat> is you'd add more water. You'd try and, you know, you keep adding water. But some clay just doesn't want to be molded. And so eventually what you would do because it, I've always struggled with this bit because it says Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then the next time it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so you get to a point where you go, I've tried to mold this, I've tried to work. Forget it, just put it in the kiln how it is and let's find a use for it. Because one way or another, I'm going to use that for something. <laughs> See, in that verse Jeremiah 18, it says that the, the pot that he was making did not become what he had hoped. And so he broke it down and he started again. Here's where this got really interesting for me. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Did I give you that one? For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. The NIV talks about we are God's workmanship with works he's prepared for us in advance. How many people here have ever dabbled in art? The ones that are good will tell you that the reason they're good is because they, before they put a pen to paper, they know what they're looking for. They know what they're going to do. 
There's a certain episode of SpongeBob SquarePants, for those of you that want a more theology thing, where it's like, how do I turn this block of marble into a statue? He's got, you've got to see the marble. You've got to be the marble. You've got to lick the marble. And I don't know what that bit's about. But So there's this whole thing about you've got to see the finished product. So we are God's masterpiece. He created us prepared in advance. God looks at the clay and has a plan for it. He knows what he's making before he starts. But then Jeremiah, uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says, God is faithful to complete the good work within us. You will continue his work, uh, <clears throat> will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. In other words, God is faithful to keep working, to keep doing what he can do. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 to 13, though, say, Dear friends, you've always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I'm away, it's even more important. Work hard to show the results. Or some, some translations say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Obeying God with deep reverence and fear. <clears throat> For God is working in you. So there's a, you do this because God is doing this. In other words, the potter is working with you, so be good clay giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. See, one of the things that we need to understand in the context of Deuteronomy, uh, sorry, Deuteronomy, Romans chapter 9, it's just that it's so condemning that it sounds like it should be in Deuteronomy. It's because he talks about, is it not God's decision to decide who he makes, you know, one vase for glory and one vase to put rubbish in? But here's the kicker. You go do a little bit of history research, nobody ever made a vase to put rubbish in. Nobody ever made a clay pot to put rubbish in. Do you know what the clay pots used to put rubbish in were? They were the ones that after trying and trying and trying, and they went, put it in the kiln, put it over there, we'll use it for a rubbish bin. It wasn't, the, the, God didn't start out with a plan going, I'm going to make a rubbish bin. The potter doesn't go, I'm going to make a rubbish bin. How glorious will that be? That'll get me famous. The rubbish bin was what could not be molded. What could not be molded, what could not be shaped after trying. So, so take Jeremiah 18. He had a plan in mind. When it doesn't work, we're going to try again. If that doesn't work, we'll try. If I really can't get this clay to work, we'll turn it into something that can be used for something anyway. Suddenly, it's not condemning. It's partnership between the potter's hands and the clay. That's why Philippians says, God's working in you. Therefore, you work out your salvation. God has good hands, therefore be good clay. Because if you continue to harden yourself, if you continue to be, be, be non-moldable, non-malleable, then eventually God will be given no choice but to harden you, to put you in the kiln and just use you for his glory for what he can rather than what he had planned. <clears throat> God will be glorified in your life. My question, my challenge to you this morning is how? God is adaptable and steadfast. His purposes are steadfast, they're non-negotiable, but his methods are negotiable. In other words, God says, my word, my will, will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. But then in Esther chapter 4, verse 14, if you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. In other words, if you're not open to being molded, I'll, I'll find a pot that will achieve the purpose that I'm looking for. We'll find more clay. We'll start this again. But you and your relatives will die. In other words, you won't be used for the purpose I created you to be. 
you'll be killed as you are and we'll find something to do. We'll feed the birds in you or something. It gets slightly morbid when you start actually applying that to people. Uh, <laughs> who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this? See, God is steadfast in his purposes, but he's adaptable in his methods because he'll just get what he wants because he's God. So this is why, to me, Paul chose to use clay. Paul could have used any other art form, but he wanted to use clay because it's the adaptable art form. It's the art form that requires patience. It's the, requ- it's the art form that requires uh, a certain element of partnership between the clay and the potter. So my next question is, oh, well, let, let's read this verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 to 10. <clears throat> we now have this light shining in our hearts. But we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. Treasure in jars of clay. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. Check this next verse out. We are pressed on every side by troubles. How many people just, let's, let's stop for a minute, because we talk about this in terms of persecution. But if you were a potter, let's read this through the mindset of a potter. We're pressed on every side, but we are not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that life, the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. In other words, in our jar. My jar's getting rounder by the day. It's So in other words, these things, these suffering, these things that come against us, we can actually use them, put them in the hands of God to mold, to shape us, to grow us, so that in the end, can we go back to that verse 10, Bo? That the treasure inside is Jesus, right? But that treasure starts to get reflected in the very jar that it's in. And so you get a jar that was made for a purpose in 400 BC that eventually starts to reflect the glory of the time and the glory of the work and then sells in the market for a million dollars because God... Are you ready for this? If you're taking notes, you're going to want to write this down. The treasure in your pot increases the value of your pot. To the point that your very life starts to reflect Jesus. Two more stories. John chapter 4. I'm going to read a bit, Bo, and then I'll ask you to put the verse up that I've given you. Those of you that went to Arise a couple of years ago will have heard this reference. I'm not going to do it quite like he did. John chapter 4, the story of the woman at the well. Jesus meets a Samaritan woman as he's going through Samaria. She's there to draw water from the well with her clay pot. And as he's talking to her, he asks her for a drink. 
And he says, if you knew who I was, you would be the one asking me for a drink. Instead of drawing water from the well, you would draw water from me. Because those who drink of me will never go thirsty. And so this goes on. And she, she says, he says, go tell your husband. She goes, I don't have a husband. And he's like, I know. You go, Thanks, Jesus. He goes, in fact, you've got five people that you, before then. And none of them were your husband either. And you don't want to marry the one you're with because that just reminds you of again and again and again. Chris Durso says it this way. This woman's life changed when she met man number seven. Watch this. Can you put that verse up for me now, Bo? John 4, verse 28. The woman left her water jar, which would have been a clay pot, beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone. Why would that be included in the text? The woman left her water jar beside the well. I would like to submit that it was this because she found that she was putting value on the wrong thing. And so the place where she used to take value, the place where she used to take purpose, the place where she used to have to keep coming back again and again and again, she realized that she was now the vessel. And the treasure in her gave value to her life. And so the woman who had been worthless in her community just 10 minutes before runs back into the community full of value and full of worth because of what Jesus has done in her life and says, come and meet him. You understand, this woman didn't have a right to talk to anybody but because of the treasure in her, the value of her very life reflected the glory of God. And the people that shouldn't have listened, listened anyway and came running to Jesus. When she found that the treasure was more important, the water, the living water was more important than the pot, her pot began to reveal the value of the treasure inside. God is going to display his glory in you. My challenge is, how is he going to do it? God's going to reveal his glory in you simply because a good potter lets nothing go to waste. Well, if we can't make this, we'll make something. If I can't convert Pharaoh, I'll use him to reveal my glory a different way. Here's Here's a prophetic statement. Potters didn't make... Rubbish bins. God doesn't make junk. You were not made to be trodden on. You were not made to be rejected, to be evil. This is the whole nature nurture thing. You were created with purpose, with plan by God who loves you. But the value of that creation only comes when we realize that the value is not in the pot, but what's inside it. When we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and we say, God, I'm giving it all to you. One last story. John chapter 9. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Why did this happen? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? And Jesus says it was not because of his sins or his parents' sins. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. All he needs, this, this pot was made so that the glory of God could be seen in it. All he needs is a little extra clay. 
we must quickly carry out the task assigned to us by the one who has sent us. The night is coming and then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. Then he spit on the ground, made clay, that word is, not mud, (laughs) made clay with the saliva and spread it over the man's eyes. In other words, this pot was created so that it could reveal my glory. All it needs, all you need in your life is a treasure inside you that's worth something and a little extra clay. I'm going to have a big sleep this afternoon. I believe the application of John chapter 9 in light of this bigger picture is clay can do miraculous things in the hands of Jesus. You can do miraculous things in the hands of Jesus. My challenge to you this morning is will you submit to the hands of the potter? You know, there's two ways to become a vase and not a rubbish bin. Because God has a vision before he started for your life. And his hope is in Jeremiah 18 is that it becomes that. I want to live into God's destiny for me, not second best, not make do with what's left. (laughs) The sooner we give ourselves over to the potter, the sooner we allow him to work in our lives. There's two conditions to be used for the glory of God in the context of pottery. Number one is stay in his hands. Stay on the wheel. Jeremy preached a fantastic sermon last week about the vine and the, and the, the branches. Abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You want to become great? We need to stay in the hands of God. We need to allow him to, to mold us. That means even when we're going through hardship, when we're going through adversity, we don't jump off the pot and go, I'm done, put me in the kiln. We go, God, I, I'm, I'm, I'm bruised but not, I'm pressed but not crushed. The second one is this, is stay pliable. There's a reason that Jesus talks about being the living water and the Holy Spirit being like water or like oil. Clay is the most pliable when it's wet. And if we want to become everything that God intends us to be, we need to stay in the hands of the potter, but we also need to stay pliable. Because there's a lot of Christians who stay in the hands of the potter, but don't change me. Like, I'm staying here, and I'll spin on this wheel until kingdom come, but this is my shape. (laughs) Don't touch me, or do touch me, but just to keep making me what I am instead of what you want me to be. God is going to display his glory in your life. How he does it is dependent on your submission to him. Because Jesus can do miraculous things with clay. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your power. We thank you for the reminder this morning in communion that you paid the highest price. We thank you that in your decision to use the analogy of clay, You made yourself a potter, someone of middle to lower class who would come into our circumstances. Jesus, you came into our world. 
And whether you were rich or whether you were poor, whatever people want to argue, Lord, we understand that you were certainly more hard done by on earth than you were in heaven. But Lord, you chose that because that was the place where you would shape us, where you would pay the price for us. And Jesus, we thank you that your love is a love that steps down and then pulls up. Jesus, we thank you that your treasure stepped down into our jars and then elevated the value and the worth of our clay. Jesus, we acknowledge this morning that our lives are only worth anything because you are in them. Lord, I thank you that even the life that feels the most worthless this morning can receive eternal life, salvation, freedom, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. And Lord, that power will do a work in them. That power gives them value. Lord, I thank you for transformed lives this morning, not by anything we can say or do, but by the saving grace of our God. If you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, there's an invitation this morning from God, not from me. You don't have to come and stand up on an altar. You don't need to even, even put a hand up. If you want to do either of those things, that's great. Well, the Bible says if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be safe. And so right now, if you're here for the very first time or maybe you're here for the hundredth time, but you've never submitted to God like that and you want to say, God, I want to leave my water jug behind. I want to stop valuing my life how the world values it. And I want to start receiving the value and the plan and the purpose and the vision and the masterpiece that you were creating for me, that you are creating in me. If that's you, you can receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior right now in this moment. All it requires is a change of heart, a turning from the direction that you once walked and saying, God, I'm committing to going your way. Doesn't mean you won't trip, doesn't mean you won't fall. But it means you'll always have someone that'll help you back up. And if that's you, I want to encourage you between now and 12.30, that gives you 60 minutes, to tell at least one person, but aim for three people, that you've decided to accept Jesus, that you've decided to follow Jesus this morning, that you've decided to repurpose your pot for his glory. God, thank you that all we need in our lives, every heart here, is a big dose of your Holy Spirit and a little bit of clay. And so God, would you work through us and in us and out of us, we pray this week in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.